They said it was forbidden. They said it was dangerous. They were right. Introducing the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual. Dive into the arcane, into the hidden corners of the occult. This isn't just a comic. It's a hidden tome of supernatural power. All original artwork illustrating the groundbreaking research of Juan Ayala, one of the only living homunculologists of our time. Learn how to summon your own homunculus, an enigma wrapped in the fabric of reality itself, their power at your fingertips, their existence, your secret. Explore the mysteries of the Aristotelian, the spiritual, the Paracelsian, the Crowleyan homunculus, ancient knowledge lost to time, now unearthed in this forbidden tale. This comic book holds truths not meant for the light of day, knowledge that was buried, feared, and shunned. Are you ready to uncover the hidden, the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual, not for the faint of heart, available now from Paranoid American. Get your copy at tjojp.com or paranoidamerican.com today. talk about his UFO abduction experiences or alien abduction experience in reading his stuff. And he said he actually had a conversation. And it was interesting because the jinn are not demon. The jinn are were created before these. And I mentioned Michael S. Heiser earlier. He talked about, when he was talking about belief in the things we put our faith in, he actually mentioned that God, that there are beings that are gods that we cannot have power over like the demon. They're different kinds and only God deals though. The Elohim, the, the bright shining princes of heaven, the council, the divine council they're called in the Old Testament. Welcome to the One on One Podcast with your host, Juan Ayala. And welcome back to another episode of the One on One Podcast. I'm your host as always, 
Make sure to follow me on social media at the 101 Podcast on all social media platforms. Check out the Patreon. Check out the Telegram. Check out all that shit. You know where to find me. Today we got Scotty Roberts with us. What's up, Scotty? How you doing? You Sorry, I had just a little uh, little phase out on my sound there, so um, I didn't quite catch it till the very end. So I'm doing well. <laughs> Thanks for having me. You prefer Scotty or Scott? You know, I'm Scott according to my publisher and professionals, and I'm Scotty according to other professionals. That, that started when I was a kid. It, got, it picked up when I was in advertising 30 years ago, and uh, they all called me Scotty R. It's Scotty R's here today. <laughs> and uh, when I was freelancing for some of them, and so it just stuck. Uh, everybody started calling me that. So now I use it as a pen name kind of. Scotty, can you tell the listeners a little bit about you, about your, can you plug your show? Tell the listeners where they can find your sure. show, your books, because you have a lot of great material and a great show well, as well. You. Well, uh, you can find my show over at Odyssey Radio. Now, that's just in audio format because it is a radio station, and uh, that's at O-D-Y-S-Y radio.com. And I simulcast every night on my uh, YouTube and uh, so you can hear the audio at the radio station, then you can see the video, uh, just like we're doing here over on uh, YouTube.com slash Scotty Roberts. And uh, you can find just about anything there is to know about me at my website, which is, I started this website because my publisher wanted my full name. So it's ScottAllenRoberts.com. And Allen is A-L-A-N. Because there's a million ways to spell Alan. So ScottAllenRoberts.com. And I've, I'm on all the social media platforms and yada, yada. You can find me. I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, my phone number is everywhere. You can even call me. I've had people call me at 2 in the morning. Go, hey, I wanted to talk to you about the Nephilim, man. And I'm like, yeah, sure, dude. Um, it's 2 o'clock here. <laughs> so, well, I I didn't call you. I reached out to you via email, so that's good. You did. And i seen that you've been to Egypt, you've done a lot of things, and you have a similar origin story, although you're probably a little bit older than I am. Uh, a similar origin story of when you got into this whole paranormal yeah. and asking those hard questions. I also have a friend of mine who, it was, a, he's an ex-evangelist, preacher, all that good stuff, mm -hmm. and then he started pulling out that thread. And when he started pulling out that thread, it starts to unravel. That's and you get to some places. He he, he looks at it uh, where God, you know, because I believe in God. I, I I do think that there is a source. You know, you got to respect that. There Me is too. there is Me something too. there. It's just it, it, to put a name and a face to it is a whole different thing. And he yeah. sees it as a good thing where you know his path was to unravel that thread and where he's at now. Can you tell a little mm -hmm. bit about your story to the listeners of what got you sure. into this whole thing? Sure. Um. I started out as a Bible school guy. I went to Bible college, uh, and uh, this will now now this will show our age difference. I went to Bible college my freshman year in 1978, and uh, and I went for a couple of years, and then I went off to seminary after that, and I worked on my master's degree in seminary and never finished that, and ended up going into advertising. <laughs> And uh, so I spent many years in advertising, but alongside of my work, I was doing youth pastor work. So I was a youth director uh, in a couple of different churches and uh, had a good time doing that, really enjoyed it. But my 
my questioning, where, like you said, when you pull that thread and it starts to unravel a bit, though there was a, a thread that was sticking out, and, and it's so funny that it is the thing that I have written about the most in my adult life. Um, when I was in seminary, we were, uh, I had a question about the passage that spoke about the Nephilim. And uh, I asked uh, uh, one of my professors, he was, who was happened to be uh, a history, uh, uh, he was an archaeologist, he was a, and major is not the word I'm looking for, his specialty was history, he was a historian. Um, and uh, uh, he was the guy that actually first got me very interested in Egyptology and, and in history altogether. When I was 11 years old, and in a Sunday school class, I was given a report to do on the Pharaoh of the Exodus. And he said, uh, the teacher at the time was one of the seminary students there. And he said, why don't you go talk to Chucky Ailing? And so I looked up Chucky Ailing and gave him a phone call as an 11-year-old kid. And we met after church one Sunday. And uh, um, he wanted to be a Dr. Charles Ailing. Uh, and he was the president of our seminary, and then he went on to be the uh, chair of history at uh, the University of Northwestern up here in uh, Minnesota. And uh, he's now, I think, or, or he was at least the uh, the president of the Near Middle East uh, Archaeological Society. And uh, so I've known this man for years, but he's the guy that got me in. And, and he was one of the guys in seminary I was asking this question of, what about the Nephilim? I said, who are these guys? The passage in the English text says, you know, and the uh, um, the sons of God came down and intermingled with the daughters of men and had children by them. And it goes into the account of the Nephilim. And I said, who were these guys? And uh, the president of the seminary happened to be having coffee with us at the time. And he said, oh, it's not what you think. I know where you're going with this. It's some kind of wild story. And and I said, now, wait, though, you guys teach us that language means things. And I said, uh, that, and that's why you, we have to take Hebrew. That's why we have to take Koine Greek. That's why we have to take Aramaic in seminary so we can understand these passages better. I said, in the Hebrew, this passage says, the, the Bene Ha Elohim, the sons of the God of many gods came down and intermingled with the daughters of Adam, of mankind. I said, that's contrasted. That's the sons of God, the daughters of men. And they had children by them. I said, so if there's a contrast there, what does that mean? And I was told, uh, well, now that was probably just the aristocrats, the sons of the aristocrats who went down slumming in the valley with the common women and had children by them. I said, innocently, I asked, so why doesn't the text just say that? Why does it say something else? And then I got kind of a, it was very, all very good natured. Nobody was upset or heated or anything. And uh, the president of the seminary said, kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. He says, let's just, let's just not go there. We aren't going to go there. Just keep that quiet. We don't need to work, worry about that. And he wasn't trying to hide anything. He just didn't want to get into it. He didn't have any other way to explain it that fit into Baptistic. I was this was a Baptist fundamentalist conservative school, and he said they just did not want to have to deal with those kinds of questions. And if they did, they found commonplace, just like you do with skeptics and ghosts and skeptics and Bigfoot and all of these different kinds of things. 
Skeptics will always look for the easy jump-to answer to explain it away as opposed to let's think a little harder and find out what this really means. And so that's where all the way back at my beginnings of my uh, adult career when I was still in school uh, working on my master's to uh, my master of divinity to become, you know, a, a minister. And uh, back then I was already questioning things. That thread had already started to unravel. And uh, what that led to was not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. I didn't say, well, God must not exist. I said, well, we obviously don't know the answers to everything that we th- we think are all right in front of our faces. And so I've pretty much spent the last 40 years um, trying to research these things and get answers to my questions. I grew up Pentecostal Christian. I mean, I've said this a bunch of times uh, on the on the show. Praise Jesus. Yeah. Sorry, and, I'm not mocking anybody. I'm just and fun the, the speaking in tongues. I played guitar. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the worship group for five years, I, I, you know, I traveled playing at different churches on Sundays. I went to juvies. I went to other churches to play. All, I, you know, I did it all. And then, but nothing in me ever do I remember because I, I was raised by my grandma. I don't ever remember wanting to go to church, like actually wanting to go. Yeah. I, I stayed because again, it was a, a familial thing it was tradition. And I just went because I had an obligation. I had a responsibility. But there was yeah. always something in me that never really clicked. And I, I remember one time, you know, Pentecostals, they they faint. They speak in tongues. Yep. They run around. Yep. I remember one time was, there was this preacher. He was, I think he was blind. And he was praying for me. And I remember every time, when he, whenever he was praying over me, I remember him pushing on the, on, on the, front, of my, <laughs> the front of my head, like, pushing and i'm like trying to keep my head i'm like what are you doing man but i knew what he was trying to do he was trying to get me to fall over because that's what they all do they all fall over they meditate whatever and then you know they get back up right right so i was i always think about that part but i started to ask those hard questions I, i i asked even you know family members i'm like hey why does the old testament say this and the new testament say that i had a family member tell me one time hey ignore the old testament ignore it and I go, well, oh. he, they, they have become like one of us, all like the Holy Trinity. Oh, okay, okay. You know, they always have some answer to everything. And then when they can't, when they can't answer it, they go, oh, you have to meditate. You have to ask God. And, to- and what was interesting was that the Judaism didn't recognize a trinity. Uh, I, yeah. At the time that those things were written, there was no trinity. So that was not representative of trinity when it said they have become just like us. Yeah, that came well, after no. the fact, thousands of years after yeah. the fact. And, you know, when you start to ask these questions, you start going on these rabbit holes. And I forgot the term that my friend uses in these schools, in these Bible schools, in these pastor schools, where it's they teach you pretty much it's it's a form of NLP where they teach you how to manipulate people's thoughts in a way. And Mm. they I forgot the name that he uses for it, but where I don't know what that term is, where you're trying to, you know, they always ask a question with another question. I forget. Anyway, that's one on one of my episodes, probably. But. I've always wondered, I'm like, they have to teach you how to, you know, how to read people, how to read body language, yes. how to answer questions, these hard questions. Cause I mean, you're standing on what people will die for, you know, beliefs, faith yes. and all these things. So it, you know, it's a very, 
delicate thing to shift somebody's paradigm for forever. Because, I mean, this is a lifestyle for some people if they choose to go to church, which there's nothing wrong with that. I, I do think that religion is a powerful tool. And if, if used correctly, you know, it can make you a better person. It gives you structure in your life and it gives you morals and, and you know, good beliefs. Again, and I always tell people I respect anyone's beliefs. If you want to worship Cthulhu or whoever the hell you want to worship, then that's on you. And you can, you know, as long as you don't hurt yourself. You figure others. that out with God, I, I tell people. You, you <laughs> yeah. figure that out with God yourself. This so. topic, one of, the, one of the topics that has always, always interested me has been the Nephilim topic uh, the nephilim the elohim uh, the watchers the fallen angels and all these things can we get into because you wrote a, a book and you you wrote the reptilian book after the fact correct yes uh the reptilian was actually the follow-up to my book on the nephilim the nephilim i'd been planning for years and then i wrote an article for a magazine and uh, that's when i was asked to do the book for new page books and uh, that article is pretty much revamped. That's the introduction to the book when you pick up the book. I happen to have one right here. Uh, I just happen to have my book for $20.95. No, I'm kidding. Uh, you, you can buy this on Amazon. It, it's everywhere. But this was the book, uh, The Rise and Fall of the Nephilim. And, uh, um, yeah, the intro was the old article that I kind of revamped and, and mm. beefed it up a little bit uh, for the book. So I had... Like I mentioned, I had lots of questions about this and spent a lot of time digging into it. I don't have all the answers, but I, set, I I kind of got very myopic on certain elements of the Nephilim story and wanted to zero in and find out, okay, who were these guys? Why were they? Uh, what's the language say? But then you'll have other people who come along and interpret it completely differently. And I so I try to use some of what I was taught which is go back to the original languages, find out what the languages say. And, uh, and of course, Nephilim, what's the source point of the Nephilim? It's the book of Genesis. But the book of Genesis is obviously a copy of the book of Enoch. It's uh, some of the very same verbiage. You get four verses in Genesis 6. It predates it by 700 years, correct? 700, yes. 800 years? And people say, well, the Book of Enoch, that was written in the 400s B.C. Well, no, I think it was copied in the 400 B.C. If you, what they're confusing is that the whole Old Testament was technically written in the 400s B.C.E. Uh, because uh, after the Babylonian captivity, Israel was sent back, the Israelites were sent back home. They rebuilt the walls of the temple and the temple itself. And what did they do? They sent a bunch of rabbis, as the story goes, 72 rabbis, to Ptolemy II, the, the, the Grecian, Greco-Roman pharaoh of Egypt at that time, and asked permission to go to the Library of Alexandria to camp out for a while and look up all, all the old and Hebrew scriptures for two purposes. One was to bolster the faithful of Israel, and to reestablish the chain of their history. And so they went to this, the Smithsonian of its day, the, uh, uh, the Library of Alexandria. And uh, they spent, I think it was over a decade, rebuilding the Old Testament scriptures. So everything from Genesis all the way to the last book of the Old Testament, all those books were actually rewritten in the 400s BCE. 
and I think Enoch was among them. But when you have Moses, who I believe there is absolutely no reason to doubt that Moses was a real guy, that Moses, you know, just like Abraham Lincoln, just like somebody, he's somebody who was a real dude in history, um, you can, that he wrote those books, the first five books of the Bible. And if he did that, it's going on. That, that's where I looked into trying to set dating. When would he have done this? What would have been the things? What were the influences on him in writing it and so on? But you take that four-verse passage about the Nephilim at Genesis 6-1. You take a look at that. That's repeated. It's something that he pulled from the book of Enoch and placed into the book of Genesis. And so it's, it's very interesting. And Moses did a lot of that. Um, and, and I'm not saying this was a problem. This is just what was done back then when Moses led the people out of uh, Egypt. I'm sure it would looked a little differently than we get in the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston or, you know, the Prince of Egypt or things like that. But you've got the story of an emancipator, somebody who came and led his people out of the land. Whether there was divine um, intervention in that, we don't know for sure. But he leads them out, and he writes down the books of the law. He establishes Judaism. Judaism did not exist prior to Moses codifying it. And you can find the codification of that uh, of that religion in the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, where he puts the law together. They build the tabernacle of the covenant, the big tented version of the temple. On the world. So all of that to say Moses created Judaism at that time based on more ancient religious practices and a probably a mishmash of different uh, prototype religions that existed he prior to he that. was 100% he was a, an egyptian scribe right is what they what they've said that he was he was 100% i, I think <clears throat> i think he was of course we'll get a little off the nephilim although i mentioned this in the nephilim book uh, i did it on purpose by the way i mentioned this whole moses thing to bolster that my publisher actually wanted me to pull that chapter out he says i don't know if that's a necessary chapter to the nephilim and I said, oh, but I think it is, because it establishes who first wrote about the Nephilim in the mm. Old Testament and well, and all of this. So, uh, But uh, um, I believe that Moses was an, an Israelite, if you will, although Israelite didn't exist before Moses. So he was a Canaanite. He was of one of the Canaanite tribes. I believe that Joseph actually existed. You remember Joseph in the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, um, as the play called it. But uh, Joseph in the coat of many colors. His brothers were jealous of him, sold him into slavery. He's picked up, he's brought to Egypt, ends up going to prison, interprets a dream for the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh raises him to great power. And uh, then 20 years later, his brothers come during famine, not even knowing he's alive anymore. Uh, looking for a place in Egypt, and uh, he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. We know that story. And by the way, this is a great historical point. If you don't m indulge me and don't mind letting me make this, um, I believe Joseph, when he people question that story, well, why would an Egyptian pharaoh raise a Canaanite slave <laughs> to the position of grand vizier? which Grand Viziers in Egypt in those days simply meant one foot off the throne. He was Pharaoh in the place of Pharaoh. And uh, why would they elevate this guy? 
Well, I think the dating system works very well. When you start dating the Exodus, Moses, uh, the time of Israel and Egypt, uh, you go all the way back to the time of Joseph. I believe Joseph came to Egypt during the time when the Hyksos kings were on the throne. The Hyksos kings were, for about 800 years, all these uh, people, uh, uh, Mesopotamia, from uh, Asia Minor, uh, Africa, uh, they all started coming in from mostly the Middle East and settling into the villages and the towns, and, and they became part of the villages and towns. They became part of the municipal part of the towns. And after about 800 years of all this mingling in, the Hyksos peoples overtook the northern kingdom of Egypt and established their own throne, their own pharaonic dynasty that lasted for about 108 years before the, down in the south, the real Egyptians, the blood Egyptians, came and ousted them. And uh, so during this 108-year period, it's interesting, in the book of Genesis, in the language again, the words mean things. It says when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, he's been missing for 20 years. They think him dead, and here he is, the grand vizier of Egypt. And once he, they all make good and everything, Joseph said, uh, now I'm going to give you some of the best land in Egypt, but Pharaoh has to approve it. So when you go in to meet with Pharaoh, it says in the book of Genesis, Tell him that you've been shepherds since the days of your youth because the Egyptians hate shepherds. And I thought, now that makes no fucking sense. Oops, sorry, pardon me. I said, that makes no sense to me. Why would he say, tell the Egyptian pharaoh that you're the thing that they hate the most? Well, as you start reading through this, you find that it becomes very apparent that Joseph is appealing to a king who is one of these Hyksos, these shepherding kings, they were called. They were part of, in a sense, they were distant shoestring cousins mm -hmm. uh, in, their, in their background, their heritage. And then when you had, after the time of Joseph, a generation passes, and it says that the pharaoh uh, came to the throne who had no idea who Joseph was and had no regard for Joseph. This would have been Amos the first. This would have been the king that ousted the Hyksos. And he's got all these remnant of these, these uh, uh, Middle Eastern peoples, including the clan of, that Joseph was from, the clan of, of Jacob or Israel. And it was a clan name, a family name. And he, what did he do? It says he slapped them all into bondage and in servitude, lest they, it says right there in the Bible, he did this lest they rise up and join our enemies again against us. And so you've got great clues in there. So Joseph, I think, came to power under the Hyksos king. And then they were all slapped into, into servitude. I don't think it was like slavery and they're all chained up on a wall together at night. I think it was just like, you are a subjugated people now. You'll do what the Pharaoh tells you to do or, or you're done. And uh, so he put them all into bondage. And uh, this is what they did until the time of Moses. Yeah, one of the so, things about history, right, his, his story, because to the victor, the yes. spoils, one of the yes. things is that a lot of the times, because I don't know if it was you that I heard say this uh, or it was somebody else, where historically the Bible is okay. 
But then when you yeah. start to take it for a literal sense, like an actual thing, yes. that's where the problem comes in because a lot of these stories, it was you I'm most definitely that I heard say, when they saw Moses part the sea, why the fuck would they want to have a golden calf made or something? It's like you just right. saw this guy. Well, uh, you know, we know uh, three (laughs) weeks ago we saw the miraculous hand of God part the waters of the sea and then drown all the Egyptians. But let's build a golden calf to worship. (laughs) That made no sense to me. It's Uh, it's amazing. And I'm pretty sure you've ran into the whole, you know, I who who do I said who do I say that sent me? Well, I am that I am. It's like, well, Mm -hmm. who's that? You know what I mean? And I, I'm well, pretty sure it was you that broke something down that blew my mind. Can you get into that a little bit? It blew my mind. It blew my <laughs> mind when I found it. I know exactly what you're talking about. And by the way, I have said about the history of the Bible. I said, I believe the history of the Bible is efficacious. It's there. It's meaningful. It's intact. You've had more than 1,500 different accounts of history in the Old Testament be verified by archaeological finds. Mm. That does not necessarily mean the faith that's wrapped around those stories is accurate. It's it's an interpretation when you put the faith on it. But in the the scene where Moses encounters the burning bush, he's been now, according to the story, 40 years since he's left Egypt. He's an old man now. He's in his 80s. And he's been like a sheikh out in Midian in the middle of the Sinai. And uh, um, so he meets God in the burning bush. And uh, now people question this, too. But keep in mind, Moses was the only guy there. And he just wrote down what happened. Oh, this is what happened to me at the burning bush. So did it happen exactly like he says? We don't know for sure. But he was the guy that was there. It was his experience. It would be like... uh, reading a book by Whitley Strieber, who wrote the book Communion about his alien abductions. Uh, uh, um, He was the guy that it happened to. It's his story. This is the same with Moses. And so Moses writes this down, but he, remember, he kind of, you can almost see this, he gives all his excuses. Oh, I'm slow of speech. I can't talk. I'm no orator. And God said, who made man's mouth? He says, you're fine. Uh, You can handle this. And, uh, so he finally, was giving God Moses, excuses. <laughs> yeah, he's giving him excuses. I can't go deliver these people. Who am I to talk to Pharaoh? My hands, hurt. you know. And God's, <laughs> you're you're who I made you to be. Yeah. And so, um, finally, uh, Moses says, and and there's a lot packed into this account. Uh, he kind of, you almost see the scene. It's almost where he kind of leans in a bit to God or the, the bush. Leans in a bit and goes, so, um, okay, I'll go to Egypt, like you say. Whom shall I say sent me? And you can see God's response is almost like, it's none of your goddamn business what my name is. You tell them I am sent you. I am that I am they speak of. I am that I am. And uh, we used to, it's such a puzzling phrase because it's transliterated into English. I am that I am. I am that I am. I am is the antecedent of the word that. I am that I am. Now, what's interesting about it, I didn't hear this till about 10 years ago when I first heard this. Um, That phrase is actually a Mesopotamian wordplay that Moses incorporated into the text. Or 
You could say maybe it was a later editor that incorporated it. We don't know for sure. I think it was in the it's in the original text as far back as we can go. And so Moses uh, wrote down that God said, uh, I'll tell you what my name is. My name is, you tell them, I am. I am sent you. I am that I am. Well, that Mesopotamian wordplay literally means in Mesopotamia, which is Sumer, Akkad, and all of those places, the Sumerians and all, I am that I am. That phrase meant, I am that Anki they speak of, is what the phrase means. That Iyah, Anki's other name in, in, in Sumer, he was known as Anki. In Akkad, he was known as Iyah. It's by the way, which is 1,500 years later in Canaan, when my religion migrated down there, Anki Iyah, Iyah is the same base word for Yahweh, which is the Hebrew word or the Canaanite word for Jehovah. And, uh, and where'd you get um, that you, from, Scotty? So you that's that's just linguistics. I, I couldn't tell you the exact source. Um, I have used uh, um, Dr. Michael S. Heiser, who is a uh, ancient linguist. I've seen it in other locations. I've seen um, uh, 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 um, another guy that's written extensively, uh, not because he's unimportant, but because I just had a brain fart. Um, <laughs> Uh, the guy who's wrote about written about uh, Exodus quite a bit, uh, David Roll, R-O-H-L. David Roll uh, was. I was having a conversation with him, and he told me about that. He showed me this long thing about how he broke this all down, the linguistics of this. Okay, that's fucking and crazy. So if you really come and think about it, but it doesn't surprise me because you're saying he's a Canaanite. You know, they talk about uh, what's that one, the child sacrifice god. The, the, the one that we Moloch. Talk, Moloch. They talk about Moloch in there, which that was a Canaanite god, you know, the, the where they sacrifice all the kids. So it wouldn't surprise me because, again, the ancient Mesopotamian Sumer, Sumer itself really paved the way for yeah. all religions. And, I mean, you have the story of Atrahasis, Noah. You have all these different stories that the Zoroastrians, that's kind of the same thing, just repackaged. The Hindu trinity was the original trinity. Yes. You know, so it wouldn't surprise me, but that that blew my mind when you brought that. I was like, "What the fuck?" But it, it wouldn't, because I mean, a lot of our that blew my words. mind the first time I heard that. Um, you know what's interesting? You talk about how it's a repackaged design uh, to these stories. Um, I, when you start looking at the the Garden of Eden story and Adam and Eve and the interaction with the serpent character, who is never called Satan or the devil or Lucifer in the Genesis passage, that came a thousand years later. <laughs> They attributed it to him. He's known as uh, Nakosh in the Hebrew language. Nakosh means the ser- uh, not. Uh, it's not a direct interpretation, meaning serpent, but the bright shining one, uh, the serpentine one. Uh, it was used when Moses raised the brass serpent on a pole so people would be healed uh, when they were all bitten by snakes during the after the exodus while they're all wandering in the desert for 40 years. And that's where the linguistics for Nagas come, comes in too, right? The yes. Well, he called that snake on the pole, the brass snake was called the Nakoshte, which was the brazen serpent. The, the Nakosh was the serpent character in the, in the Garden of Eden story. And it means a bright shining one, uh, um, prince, uh, the bringer of forbidden knowledge and so on and things like that. Now, take all of that story in Genesis, though, 
and go back 1,500 years to the Sumerian accounts of the, uh, the uh, Anunnaki, the Anu, and how that Elil, um, the, uh, the chief god of the Anunnaki's, desired, they were tired of doing their own labor, their own uh, digging their canals and mining their resources and tilling their ground. And so he went to Anki, his brother god, lesser god, and, and, and conscripted him, so to speak, to create, as it says in the old uh, cuneiform text, create primordial man to do our work for us. And so Anki goes about and he creates primordial man. And uh, what, does, uh, what do they do? It says primordial man is there to work for the god Enlil, uh, Elil, the same name, and uh, to work for the Anunnaki, to till the ground for them, to dig their resources, to dig their canals and trenches. And uh, um, what happens? Atrahasis, who you just mentioned, Atrahasis, the king of Eridu, comes along and appeals to his god, their patron god, Anki, to please come and deliver us from the bondage we have to the gods, to the Anunnaki. Deliver us and Oh, bend your ear to your servant. Atra I love the story. Ear. I love that story. Yeah, I do when, too. He, when he tells him what to do, he's like a wall or something. And he's like, yes. well, I didn't tell him directly. He's like, he's like, yeah, where, where's this coming from? It's like a wall or something. he's like on the other side of the wall. And yeah. the wall tells him. <laughs> yes. And uh, so it's interesting that uh, what happens? Anki comes down with his followers. They fight for. Atrahasis, they give him all the forbidden knowledge, and they're freed from bondage to the Anunnaki. And what happens? Elil then, in great anger, uh, uh, wants to cast Enki and all his followers into the subterranean caverns of the earth to dwell forever. Now, fast forward 1,500 years. God creates man, places man in the garden to do what? To till the ground and keep it for him. And gives him a command, you shall not eat of this tree, or these trees, it ended up being. And uh, uh, all these commands, mankind does it anyway. Uh, mankind falls, mankind is cast out, and the serpent character, Nakash, is cast to the ground. And of course, we have all the mythology of Satan and hell and the, the subterranean caverns of the earth, and so on. So, And Elil, the chief god of the Anunnaki, that's the same base word for El in the Canaanite culture, mm -hmm. which was the word for God, which is what the Hebrews used. God, El, Elohim, El Shaddai, El Elyon, all these names for God. Uh, Anki, of course, Anki, Iyah, Yahweh. Um, and uh, the, the parallels are unbelievable. So the big question is, was there a proto-religion that Moses drew from? Did he borrow the story? Did he plagiarize the story? And say, eh, let's just change it up a little bit. Uh, so I think Moses created Judaism out of whole cloth. You even look at the layouts, temple, the holy place, and the holy of holies, and the, the way the temple is set up, it, it mimics the way Egyptian temples are set up. You look at the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is in an Egyptian bark shrine. Uh, they're all over the walls in Egypt. You can see them in hundreds of different places. And uh, uh, so all of these things were copies. And so 
there's something very interesting, too, about Moses that I have to bring up here. And it ties into this thing about recognizing who the gods were and so on. Do you remember the Old Testament tells us that uh, Moses wrote in the book of Exodus, he wrote these words, No man shall see God's face and live. Well, you'll see his ass. Yeah, you can see his ass, which is what Elijah did. Yeah, and I saw God walk by, and I saw his hinder portions. Yes, and uh, so, but I do remember so that, said, absolutely. So I have said unblasphemously, by the way, uh, on something I don't want to. Hey, Scott, are you ever going to do this thing again? I said the day God walks by me in a cloud and shows me his butt cheeks <laughs> is the day I will do that again. So, um, but. Uh, so Moses wrote, no man can see God's face and live. Nine verses later in the same chapter, it says, Moses, it says, and Moses pitched his tent outside the camp. And there God would come to Moses' tent and meet with Moses face to face and converse with him as a man would talk to his friend. And I thought, well, wait, flip, 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 flip. Nine verses earlier, didn't Moses just say... No man shall see God's face. That's the Holy live. Spirit. Is that what they say? It's, that's the Holy Spirit. That's a different. That's what they say. You know what I believe it is, and I don't just believe this. I think this is it. This is the answer to that. Moses, remember, the first forty years of his life grew up in Egypt. He was he went to the school of the nobles. Uh, there's a lot of Jewish tradition outside of the Bible. Jewish tradition, Jewish writings, the Mishnah, the Mikvah, the all these different writings. They talk about how Moses was a general in the Pharaoh's army, uh, how Moses uh, was a great prince, and Moses did all these things. If any of this is true at all, for 40 years of his life, he lived in this system. Uh, it says, even in the Bible where it says, he went and he identified with his people. And uh, it doesn't say, like in the movies, that he went down into the mud pits and started making bricks with them. It says he identified with them. It said he and his entourage were there observing his Hebrew brethren, and he felt sorrow in his heart for them, and he identified, these are my people, I'm Hebrew, uh, I'm, I'm an Israelite by birth. It didn't change his standing, it wasn't a big secret. Uh, he was, there was lots of integration. He was an adopted son of the Pharaoh. And so here you've got Moses now, he's grown up in this system, he's been schooled there, and all of a sudden, he is now the leader of a people for, with a 40-year gap in between where he's run away. Why did he run away? It said he murdered an Egyptian taskmaster. Now, what's interesting about even that event, the man that I think was Moses, and I wrote about this in my book on the Nephilim to establish who he was historically. I wrote about it in a different book, The Exodus Reality, but this guy right here. Uh, he's back behind the Bigfoot. <laughs> Sorry, uh, that's uh, here. Let's let's remove the Bigfoot. Is that a real um, casting? There he is. Uh, it's a uh, secondary casting, by the way. This was uh, the Patterson Gimlin. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, Bigfoot. So, and this was gifted to me. Wow. So there it is. That's the actual size of that. That's crazy. So uh, it's a cast of a cast. But uh, back there is Sunnenmut, and Sunnenmut was a grand vizier underneath the female pharaoh, Hatshepsut. And without getting into all that history, this is who I think Moses was. And I, I go about establishing What dynasty that. are we talking about? Because there's so many. 18th dynasty. This 18th. is 18th dynasty. 
So you're looking at about um, 1526, I think it was, is the year I've got pegged for right around then the birth of Moses. That's pretty late. And there's late, reasons no? I do this. You can go, there's a, a hard, fast verse in the Bible that sets a dating system into play. It says in 1 Kings 6, verse 1, that Solomon, the son of David, that when he built the temple in Jerusalem, Temple 1, that he laid the foundation stone, he started building the temple in a certain day, on a certain month, uh, in uh, uh, 480 years after the Exodus. And uh, now it's a round figure, 480. But we know that David and David would have lived in the mid 10th century BCE. His son Solomon followed him. Uh, so you can pretty much, there's not a lot of controversy, except for those who don't want to believe David or Solomon ever even existed, which I believe they did. And there's a lot of proof for it. But Solomon, he would have dedicated that temple right around 966 BCE. That would have been the date of the founding of Temple One in Jerusalem. Now, if you take that 480 years and you go back in time, um, 480 years since the coming out of of Israel under Moses from Egypt, 480 years, you get 1445, 1446 BCE. And all you you do, you go to the the chronology of the kings of Egypt, which, oh my God, there's five of them. And they kind of shift all over the place, depending on who recognizes whose regency or co-regency or whatever. So you go by some of the standard, like the Oxford standard uh, dating system. You end up with 1446 BCE. Who's on the throne? A guy named Amenhotep II, who is the son of Tutmosis III, who's the son of Tutmosis II, who's the son of Tutmosis I. Um, you've got that Moshe name is in there, that Moses name. and um, uh, But there's another key element in history. This is how you decipher these things. So you got that pretty much established, but nothing that says Moses was born on this day. You don't find that anywhere. Um, <clears throat> but remember, after the Exodus, they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, according to the story. And then when Moses dies, uh, Joshua takes over. What's the first military campaign they wage entering into the promised land, like within months of the death of Moses? It's uh, Jericho, where you get the old spiritual, uh, you know, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. How they marched around the city and God miraculously tumbled the walls down. What's very interesting, you go to modern-day Jericho, and the tell, the archaeological tell of the ancient city of Jericho is there. I mean, Kathleen uh, Kenyon uh, uh, was digging in there a hundred years ago, and uh, so the tell has been there forever. Well, what they found out about ancient Jericho is that they've dated the destruction of the city. They they don't claim that it's necessarily the biblical story, but they... uh, I felt like Indiana Jones for a second there. Remember in the first movie, he goes, didn't you guys ever go to Sunday school? Um, <laughs> but uh, um, they have dated the destruction of the city to around 1405 BCE. All right. 
the city laid fallow and unrebuilt for 800 years. So it wasn't built up again. 800 years after 1400 is what? About 600 BCE. 600 when Jericho was finally re-inhabited and rebuilt. Well, they date that destruction to 1405 B.C. through artifacts and all the different things they find in the ruins there. And that's been dated that way for the last hundred years. Well, if the Exodus took place in 1445-46 B.C.E., and they've got the destruction of Jericho between 1400 and 1405 B.C.E., you got 40 years right there. That's that 40 years of leaving Egypt, wandering in the wilderness. Joshua takes over, mm. bam, goes in and starts defeating the land of Canaan. And he takes the city of Jericho. And uh, this also firmly places the Exodus outside of Ramses II, the famous Ramses II, who was not the pharaoh of the Exodus. He was about 250 years too late. His reign took place during that 800 years of, of uh, Jericho not being occupied. Mm-hmm. So it couldn't have happened then. So um, uh, all of this is all stuff that I write about in the book on the Nephilim, the rise and fall of the Nephilim, because I wanted to establish the veracity of the writing of Moses. And this is the way I justified it. And this was another thing of mine. I had the Nephilim. And from my youth, and I had the uh, uh, the story of Moses from my youth, from the, from when I was eleven years old, getting that information from Chucky Ailing, um, and uh, um, that information stuck with me my whole life, and I wanted to write about that, and so I wanted to squeeze this into my book on the Nephilim, and so then we we did that, and uh, then uh, I did the Reptilians book, and then they also then they let me write the book on the Exodus. The Exodus reality, which has all this stuff tucked into it. So yeah, I I remember being ten or eleven years old reading about the book Revelation, and I mean you could see how that could be. I remember my my grandma telling me stories about how they were going to cut my head off if I, you know, after the rapture came, they were going to cut my head off if I, you know, in order to accept God again. It's like no, you're going to have to get your head chopped. I was like, as a kid, that's so traumatizing. We got the same thing. Yeah, it's traumatizing. You know what I mean? Like as a as a twelve year old kid, eleven year old kid, that's crazy. You know, right, right. We learned all that eschatological stuff. You know, the doctrines of the end times. And uh, when I was in the church youth group in the seventies, growing up as a kid, we learned all that stuff and heard about all that stuff, and uh, had to study it in Bible college and seminary. And got preached to at it uh, about it in church, so we knew, you know, the age of grace came at the, the resurrection of Christ. Started the age of grace. That's going to end when the rapture comes. When the rapture comes, starts the seven-year tribulation. Mm-hmm. After the tribulation, <laughs> the battle of Armageddon and the thousand-year millennial kingdom of Christ on earth. This is what we were taught. So, can we go back a little bit? Because you know, we're talking about the Anunnaki. We're talking about yeah. their creation story. There's, you know, I like I, that. This is why I I relate and I love the Gnostic worldview because again, it it puts a, a different twist on it. But we have to understand that the demiurge concept it's it's Platonic, right? It's it's Plato mm-hmm. came up with it. The Neoplatonists. And then, you know, they paved the way for Christianity. And then you have the Gnostics, yes. the early Gnostic sects first. 
second, third century, and then obviously they were wiped out because again, to the victor, the spoils. When you're preaching heresies, you're gonna get burned at the stake, right? Right. So the whole Anunnaki story, the one thing that really irks me when I when I because you were talking about oh they they were they made man in order it was a creation you know they they did it mm-hmm. to to mine for gold I'm like why would a such a powerful entity or a highly advanced alien race why why the fuck would they need us to help them if they're so advanced and I mean I know you've talked to to uh, uh, Eric Von Daniken, and he's always yeah. he's all about the whole you know UFO alien <laughs> shit. It's like, what would a highly advanced race want to do with us? Why wouldn't they just do it themselves with it? And there have been minds that have been proven to be hundreds of thousands of years old. So I mean, somebody was mining for. I gold. think it's like I look at it like the Spanish conquistadors coming to Central America. Uh, enslaving the Arawaks, enslaving the Kunas in Panama. Uh, Why did they do that? Didn't they have more advanced technology for doing this? Yeah, but it was easier with advanced weapons to have the common folk do it for you. Um, If Now, I have to put this, this one caveat on everything. None of us were there. None of us knows how it really came down. Um. Is this all uh, etiological stories, which are mythologies created in order to explain things that happen to the common folk? Um, Great either geologic events or great this or great that, and we explain them away uh, by putting stories on them. Um, I would have you to know? agree with that, Scotty, because the yeah. the rhetoric and the art of memory, one of the techniques that you use for that, especially when you're building a mind palace, is make up a crazy story. So crazy no, and so extravagant that you're going to remember it when you go to recite it. And if, uh, back then, uh, the only thing that would be written down in cuneiform or any tablets what had to be super important. Not only that, but you needed to know how to write and you needed to have yeah. the materials to write. So. You're just telling stories back and forth with people, and eventually somebody comes along and goes, hey, I remember that from this crazy story, because even with Pythagoras and Iamblichus, where there are parallels with the story of Jesus Christ and Pythagoras, and it's like, well, maybe Iamblichus was like, hey, let me remember this by saying that he guessed how many fish there were, you know, when he first pulled up. And, well, that's the same story they told about Jesus Christ. It's the same story they tell Mm -hmm. about Pythagoras. And how he was born of a virgin as well. And it was the Oracle of Delphi uh, told them that, hey, you're going to have this son and he's going to be one of the greatest minds of all time. It's like, well, that sounds very eerily similar to the story of Mary and Jesus Christ and all this stuff. Where, certainly you know, does. So, again, I have to agree 100% with that where it's the rhetoric and the art of memory where you need to come up with a crazy story. Not only that, but right. nationalism as well. You know, <clears throat> My guys well, are the do- best. Why do all these uh, tribal cultures from ancient times, uh, it's like uh, um, Native American culture, even you've got, you know, and, and, you know, great, great bear fought the battle with great wolf and killed him and slung him into the sky by his tail and his entrails made the Milky Way or whatever it is. Those stories were created for the common mind or the child to grasp onto. And uh, I think they were only meant to be stories when they originated. So 
I, I think you see a lot of this. I don't know exactly what point we were on when we when we uh, side trailed off onto that, but uh, all of these stories that exist, you've got to start to try to find ways to decipher what's a story and, and what's a real event that took place. And this is where I think you can look at historical events and say these things happened. You can look at, um, I'm speaking Old Testament-wise, you can say, well, we found this and this and this and all these things that set um, proofs for archaeological record or for historical record to be proved. There are other things you can't prove. Uh, you can pretty much prove, and when I use the term secondary historical evidence, because it's not direct. Um, you have nothing that says, and the Hebrews took this route, you know, you know, the uh, Bob's Highway th- to the east through to the, the Red Sea. It doesn't say that in there. Uh, it doesn't say any of these things in there, but they give you the story, the account of what they did, but then they tack on the stories of faith on top of them. Mm-hmm. The Red Sea parting and so on. Was that a geologic event? Was it a spiritual event? We don't know for sure. I saw a meme on that subject. I saw a meme <laughs> where it was like two Roman soldiers and one of them asked the other one, he's like, hey, what year is it? And he's like, you know, 300 B.C. He's like, B.C. He's like, yeah, before Christ. And the guy goes, who the fuck is Christ? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, I I tend to believe, I, I have studied Gnosticism, ancient mysticism, not researched it like a lifestyle, but tried to study to get my, a handle on it because first century Christianity was very different than the Christianity we have today. Fascinating. <clears throat> it's utterly fascinating. And what you had for the next 200 years was literally a war between the Gnostics and the mystics, Eastern mysticism, Mediterranean East, uh, mysticism, uh, at war with the burgeoning literalist Orthodox Church, which became later, of course, the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, the literalist, the orthodoxy, and so on. No, it must be this and this and this. Um, I think this is where you saw a lot of things in the New Testament. I think there's a lot of good stuff in the New Testament. I think if there is a message that Jesus is the absolute Son of God who died, rose again, and takes away the sin of the world, it's buried in one of two things. Either it's a lie of Satan who has deceived us all because God's too weak to prevent him from doing that, or it is something that has been so changed over time that we don't understand what the real story was actually all about and how the mystics claim that Jesus was a son of God because he was one of those that had risen to that status. He had become a gone above uh, others, and they, they elevated him to the status of a son of God or, or a, a God-man, uh, whereas Christianity... He paints a picture of being the Son of God, only begotten Son of God, as John 3.16 tells us. And so <clears throat> the big question I would ask, and I know I'm rabbit-trailing a bit here, one of the questions I've asked is, is that, and we just talked about this not long ago again, uh, if God, 
if 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 hell is a literal place that is separation from between God and his created humans for all as the bible says eternity i would say all infinity unending separation from the love of god where there could be according to according to some biblical passages weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth where the worm does not die and the flesh is not consumed by the fire uh, you've got all these elements of hell that are thrown in all because somebody does not follow the message that the followers of Jesus were preaching to accept Jesus as your personal Savior, that God wants none to perish. God wishes, the Apostle Paul said, that none should perish, but that all should have everlasting life. Yet he's prepared this place, this awful place where for all infinity... Just in case. Just in case you go, eh, you fuck off. I don't want to have anything to do with this. Uh, now, here's the big question I have. If, that's, if all of that is true, why would an infinite God place on the minds of his obviously finite creation with finite, limited knowledge of the universe, the afterlife, dimensions, and so on, that finite, that most finiteness of minds that lasts, if it lives an average lifespan, 70 to 100 years? And then they're gone, and they've got only that time to make that, with their finite brains and understanding, that decision of infinite import with nothing but words written 2,000 years ago in old manuscripts. Mm -hmm. Is that all the more power that God has to... And I'm not challenging God here. I'm saying this is the thought process I go through. And so I have to look at that with the biblical stories as well. There are some of those things. Michael S. Heiser, somebody that I talked about who's a linguist and a scholar, he said something very profound. I had put it up on my Facebook the other day. He says we all have to accept one of two things. Either we live understanding that there is something greater than the reality we experience or that this is it. And depending on how you make that decision will determine on how what you believe by a faith issue. And oh, and by the way, that's the other issue that bothered me too is why would a such a monumentally infinite decision need to be made by faith alone? Um, I understand when you get into spirituality and, and 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 metaphysics and all of this stuff that oh well, you know, faith is because your heart is as your mind. It's, I, I get all that. I get the esoterics of it. But <clears throat> I would be hard-pressed to really understand in its full impact why an infinite God would do that to his finite creation. So those are one of the questions. Those are some of the driving questions I had over the years. And that would also go to uh, all this other stuff when we're extrapolating information from the Sumerian culture up into the Hebraic culture, up into the Old Testament and the Acts of the Old Testament. The history is intact, but the belief system, how do you know that that is what was actually happening? You don't for sure. You don't, and, uh, and you're not ever going to know is the issue, and, and we're literally fighting wars. I mean, you know, yes. speaking of the early church history, they were fighting about, they had schisms about what type of bread that they were going to use for the Eucharist. You know, they were fighting about the types of bread 
that there were you there were wars fought what for kind the of bread. bread. Okay, so yep. And when you go back, I mean, the validity of it being it so many years ago, okay, you know, you have the Nag Hammadi, you have the Dead Sea Scrolls, you have all these scriptures that are from a non-Roman filtered lens, because that, that's the whole mm -hmm. thing, the Nag Hammadi and all these things, they had to be hidden away because they were, her you know, they're heretical. So they needed to be put in scrolls and tucked away in some cave for, for forever. And, you know, there's a hundred, there's probably a hundred different gospels of a whole bunch of different people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I go back even to the whole, the reason, you know, a, a, one of the biggest versions that is you, one of the most used versions is the King James version. If you look at the sketchy history of King James, I mean, oh my and, and his associates, yeah. you know what I mean? It's like, how is it okay when these guys, you know, supposedly Francis Bacon was editing the Bible and all this stuff. It's like, well, did they put Rosicrucian symbolism in there? You know, how much of it is, is it's watered down and, and it's passed down. That's and it. I've always said that, you know, I believe in magic and I believe in all that shit, the occult. I believe mm -hmm. in all that stuff. And mm -hmm. I feel that when we're using these things that we don't understand, these scriptures especially, if they had some hidden meaning within it, because that's the whole thing with alchemy and symbolism for with symbols, you know, to the uninitiated, it's just whatever. It's nothing. It's, Oh, well, it's just a, mm -hmm. you know, it's hieroglyphs for the initiated. It's a whole different language. It's, it's, it's yeah. more intricate and has a deeper meaning well, than what is presented. Well, isn't that the thing about uh, what were the words uh, for the interior and the exterior in, in ancient mysticism? There was the exoteric as above, so below. The, yeah. Yes. And then yeah, the her hermeticism intrinsically and, internal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You have the exoteric oh. and the, the esoteric. And the whole thing with that is how do you, how do you know if you're not carrying the intention of a magician or whoever it is further by oh. you unintentionally reading this work and passing it forward? Because like I said, we're not ever going to know. And that's the craziest so, part, but people, die for this shit and again yeah. i believe in a god just how the greeks believe you know i consider myself an emanationist where i do believe there's a source and from that source that emanates reality okay you know the eminent you know the, okay. the, the 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 center there's yep. a source there's a god you know you know you have how you said you have the clear view of when they went from polytheism to monotheism where it goes from all these multiple characters anu and lil uh yeah, what whoever whoever it is, and it trickles down to one figure. Well, let's make him three. You know, let's make him the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's like, well, that's that is literally the most confusing thing about yes. Christianity. That is that aspect, and there's even paintings of Jesus with three faces that need to be taken yeah. down because they're like that looks too pagan. You can't. Well, I <laughs> I I believe, and maybe this is what you're getting at too, is that that was one of those like etiology like placing myth on top of something real in order to make it understandable maybe not meant to be diabolical literal but there was i believe it was the trinity was created to be able to accommodate that not because it existed and they had to figure out how to make it work god revealed there's a trinity well, did God reveal that or is it? And this is it's so hard because I do believe that there is a God. I do believe there is a creator. I believe that I, I've started using the word originator. And I got to tell you, just as a wacky side trail, 
Um, <clears throat> I did a big study on the gin um, about a year and a half ago and uh, did uh, a couple of weeks worth of shows, daily shows on the gin, exploring that. And I went through, and I don't remember the guy's name, um, PhD in something, and uh, he had his encounter with a gin, and he wrote about this. And it wasn't, to me, it wasn't, this was like listening to a Whitley Strieber talk about his UFO abduction experiences or alien abduction experiences in reading his stuff. And he said he actually had a conversation with. And it was interesting because the jinn are not demons. The jinn were created before demons. Interesting. Uh, and I mentioned Michael S. Heiser earlier. He talked about, when he was talking about uh, uh, belief in the things we put our faith in, he actually mentioned that God that there are beings that are gods that we cannot have power over like the demons. They're different kinds, and only God deals with those. The Elohim, the uh, the bright shining princes of heaven, uh, the council, the divine council, they're called. In the, the galactic, the Ashtar Galactic Command, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, basically the same thing. But the, the jinn... Uh, this man asked the jinn some questions. May I ask you questions? He said, please do. And it was asking him questions. And this wasn't a guy trying to set forward a new theology so he could start a cult. Or just telling you, this is these are the questions I was curious about and I wanted to know. They asked him about God, and he said, uh, have you met God? And uh, um, the answer was was a little vague. But uh, they said, God is not the same being that you would think of as your creator, the jinn said to him. Was this on a Ouija uh, board, there, Connie? That they were using? No, no, this was actually like a, a vision that he had. And uh, he was traveling on a down the highway through the desert in Egypt uh, for hours and riding in a vehicle. And he had, he said, it was not a dream. You interviewed and him? By the way. Uh, what's I've, I'm going I want to interview him I haven't reached out to him yet Interesting. but I read his account and uh, he said he had this vision and he had another one because he sought it out and he was told by this jinn that God isn't the creator they're not the same he says that's the originator mm. he says we we call him the originator but there is the God uh, who is the not the creator that's the and it went into all these things in describing and i thought it was very interesting that now, sounds amazing if i can make a side note here i've always wanted to come across as being fairly practical and pragmatic when i do my studying i don't want to go uh, for, i don't care what anybody thinks out there i don't mean to offend anybody's spiritualities or sensibilities or anything but i don't want to pray and go and god revealed to my soul that this was this and yeah uh, to me i i want to know things and i want to know things more solidly than that uh richard Feynman, astral physicist uh um uh theoretical physicist he was a contemporary of I'm, I'm oppenheimer einstein and all he said for me to doubt is the basic thing that moves me along in life he says, I don't ever want to come to know something, even though I want to know things. <clears throat> he says, that's why we do this. He says, but I doubt. 
He says, I don't want to come to the end of my days and realize that the thing that I thought I knew was the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, because there's no verification for it. And uh, he wasn't an atheist, as far as I could tell. He was just a seeker. Uh, and I am kind of the same way with God, is that I want to know things. Um, <clears throat> uh, I'm trying to think of the exact point I was trying. There's so many different tendrils that this goes off to in my head. Is that uh, looking at this whole thing when the, the, the jinn talked about, oh, I was talking about the, the, the vision this guy mm. had. And this is why I'm giving this little bit of background, is that I've had at least one that I know of, a vision of my own. I am not given to that shit. I don't go out and go, oh, I had a vision last week, and here's what I was told by the great spirit. I don't, I don't do that. Um, it's not that I discount people who have those experiences. It's that I don't, and I haven't sought to teach what I learned that way because I don't want people to think I've sucked it out of my own thumb mm -hmm. and that I've made this stuff up or that it's some bullshit uh, spiritual experience that I had uh, when I was on ayahuasca or whatever it might be, or I was smoking pot one day and God revealed to me, you know, I don't want people, I don't want to place my, my research into that category, but I had one experience that was like that. And it was in Egypt. It was at the Stepped Pyramid of Dozier. Uh, it was in the Hebsed Court, the, the, the broken-down, tumbled ruins of the Hebsed Court, right alongside, I mean, right over my shoulder was the Stepped Pyramid. And uh, um, I had, I'll share this with you for a second. There was no, as far as I've known, not a deeper spiritual implication like who is God or anything like that. But I'm sitting in this courtyard, and it's full of rubble that's been neatly lined up. And there's along the sides of this court, but figure about the size of like uh, two basketball courts set end for end in length and about the same width, lined by temples that had these coved tops in the fronts and little porches out in front of each of them. And there's only three of them rebuilt, and the rest is all rubble. And I'm sitting on the rubble, and I'm having a cigarette uh, on a rock. It's in the middle of the day. Nobody there. A cigarette, Scotty? Art. Nothing else? Just a cigarette? Uh, just a cigarette. All right. <laughs> <laughs> just, just tobacco. It was Cleopatra's uh, Egyptian cigarette. And uh, all the Egyptians would tell me, uh, here, would you like to smoke? And I, and I go, well, I got some. They go, well, I got Marlboro, Cowboy man. And I said, well, I got Cleopatra's. And they go, oh, don't smoke those. Smoke Is that a those. real thing? Cleopatra's? Cleopatra's, yeah. Really? Uh, that's the brand over there. What the fuck? And uh, <clears throat> so we'd smoke them like packs a day. Just that's the way we were <laughs> when I was over there. And uh, But anyway, I'm sitting there. I'm having a cigarette. And I'm looking at the ruins. The, the pyramid is right over my right shoulder. And... Uh, Nobody's there except John and I, my, my archaeologist friend. And all of a sudden, everything changes. Um, the Hebsed Court, I'm looking at it in front of me. It's clear. It's like a sandy uh, sand, it's soft sand, and it's lined. And all these temples, these cove temples, are all built. 
and coming out of the 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 the, the top of each one of the coves is a long like 12 foot long torch a big shaft and they were all lit and the sun is low in the sky I see the shadow coming in at this angle over everything the torches are all lit I could feel the breeze I could smell incense and marching toward me from the other end of the court w- was a line of priests what I interpreted as priests they were all wearing the white kilts bare-chested bald carrying silver platters with objects on them and they all marched toward me and turned about 20 feet in front of me turned to the right and marched over to the other side which is about 25 feet away uh, to the other side and I'm watching this and they're chanting as they're going I'm hearing the chanting smelling the incense feeling the breeze and I blinked and and it was all back to the way it was before and I had tears in my eyes it would not for me emotion but from you know, when you get chills up your back and you just go, whoa, and your eyes will water up. And it was kind of that kind of thing. And I'm like, what the fuck was that? It was my response. And uh, um, I haven't figured it all out, but I've had so much happen to me since that that's related to that. Um, I, I got up and I walked across to the other side of the court. And I'm just looking around, and I took a bunch of pictures. And uh, then John, he caught up to me, and we we took off for the day. And uh, I was looking, that was in 2013 that that happened. I was looking back two years ago at those pictures for a friend of mine who was going there and wanted to go, well, what did you see? What was the, I go, I got these great pictures of the Step Pyramid and the Hebzed Court. And I called him up, and I I'm showing them the pictures. I said, there's the stone I was sitting on when I was smoking, and I had this little vision thing, and and I blew it up, and I'm scanning across, and on the left side, looking down the stonework, emerging from around the backside of the stonework, is a figure. And this figure was black and brown with the sun shining off of like a big muscled shoulder, and a bicep and an arm going down. You see the fingers and the thumb and the, the, the rib cage to the hip, and then it fades off. It cuts off about here, you know. You don't see the face or the head. And it's emerging from behind the stonework. And uh, now anybody, there was nobody there. The only people there were the guardians who were hired by the government to mind these sites. They're all Egyptian men from the villages. They all were the Galabeas. Uh, to every last person, the Galabea, the long-sleeved robe that drops down to the ground. You've seen them in modern-day pictures, and and that's how they all dressed, white or light blue. And this person was obviously a black, uh, skinned, dark-skinned, um, reflecting a bit in the sunlight, but it was tiny in the picture, and I had to blow it way up to look at it. And uh, <clears throat> what was interesting about this is once I, I pulled back a little bit, this thing was about nine feet off the ground. What the fuck? And I thought, what the hell am I looking at? And uh, I showed this to a good friend of mine. You may know who this is, uh, David Weatherly. Uh, he's an author. He authored books like uh, The the Black-Eyed Children um, and many other books. I've heard the name, yeah. And uh, he was looking at this picture, and he came back and said, uh, I 
have a feeling you this this is a gin encounter. Whoa. And now other things that have happened to me since that seem to verify that. Now, this is way off the topic of Nephilim, way off the topic of Moses, of any of this stuff. But this is that experience that I had that I put in that vision category that I say something happened here. And I had other experiences connected to it that seemed to indicate there was something very different about this experience. Uh, you can, I've got the pictures. They're up on my Instagram. They're somewhere on my Facebook. Uh, I can show you these pictures someday. But uh, um, if you go to my Instagram account, which is just, I think it's Mr. Scotty Roberts. If you go over there, you scroll way back about a year and a half in my pictures on my Instagram. You're going to see these pictures of the Hebsed court and uh, this character, this this being. And um, so what did it all mean? I don't know for sure. Uh, maybe I'm not thinking hard enough about it. Uh, maybe it's as plain as the nose on my face. But I, I saw that, and it started to tie into a lot of the things that I was doing in Egypt, a lot of the things I was writing about at the time. This was in 2013, so nine years ago. Um, and, uh, um, and ever since then. So something is telling me. So now I had, uh, um, Were as you a scared result, when you saw that? No, I, well, I saw it in the photo, so I, I didn't see it when it happened. That's the thing. But did you feel um, any sense of dread when that was happening? Uh, I felt no dread. I had that vision of the priests marching and I came out of that and I was like, wow, that was freaky and i was talking to john about it and i said i i can't make ends and an and end out of this well it was very interesting that his wife uh who is dr maria nilsson she is the actual the swedish uh, she's swedish she's the head of their archaeological mission at gebel el silsila in egypt big quarry site <clears throat> she told me uh on that trip because of other things that had happened, she said, Scotty, she said, back in Sweden, she says, I am a witch. She says, here I am an academic. And she said, uh, and they've got their feet in both worlds. And uh, she said, uh, I had a, an experience a week later than that, that experience at the tomb of Senenman, this guy. And uh, she was the one that told me, uh, you need to go back down into the grotto down there. The, it's just like a big ditch off the main road. So you need to go back down there and sit and ask for clarity. Now, you would never know this about her when you see her. Uh, John and she are on uh, uh, Nat Geo all the time with their, their site and different things that they do around Egypt. Uh, they have put that site archaeologically back on the map. They don't do a lot of talking about the woo side of things for that reason, because they are in the academic circle of scholars. And so she says, we have to keep these things kind of separated. But uh, she acknowledges it. And she's one of the first ones who told me a week after that experience, she said, uh, I had a vision uh, of my own. She said, here in the house, in their house in Luxor. And she said, um, I had a little girl that was putting her hand out. And it was basically for you and John saying that you guys are on the right path. You just need to take my hand, she said. 
And I said, what does that mean? She said, I don't know exactly. And this is when we were writing the book on Moses, and uh, which is uh, was right there. Oh, there it is. That's a hell of a synchronicity. I mean, that people can see that. You know, that was the book that John and I were writing. And I just pulled my headset out of my ear reaching for that. So give me a second here and I'll plug that back in. But uh, I don't have any of the pictures of that in here. So that's, that a hell, that's a hell of a synchronicity because, I mean, we, you know, we, we have, yeah. I have synchronicities every now and again, but, you know, I've never had anything supernatural that I know of, right, happen to me in yeah. that sort of, of way where you see something and all this stuff. But I, I would have been we, we the fuck the, out. We left the supernatural out of this book. Just to give you an idea, this book, by the way, is filled with all the uh, pictures of John and I when we were doing this trip. And uh, I was a month over there when this all happened. And we've got, there's like 16 pages of color in this book of all these different things. And then black and white photos throughout the whole book. Uh, This was a fun book. But the experience was amazing, and the things that happened when I was there, and the the, the stuff I saw. Um, if you want a little bit of a paranormal, I was there the next year, well, a couple of years later. Um, I'd been there four or five times. The last time I was there, uh, we were at their archaeological site, which is about 100 miles south of Luxor on the Nile River, one of the narrowest points in the river. And uh, they have a big, uh, their archaeological site spans uh, 23 square miles of the desert on both sides of the river. And uh, what's there are all these quarry sites and uh, ancient quarries going back to prehistorical times. They have rock art all the way up into almost modern day where they're pulling stone out of those quarries. But all through the dynastic period. I went out, there's a line of shrines all along the west bank of the river. They were working over on the east bank. They took the little boat launch uh, over every morning, and they were working on Big Hill that was uh, the, the stables of Tiberius Caesar, his period uh, that, were, that was there on the site. And uh, so I'm going through all these different shrines all along, and I'm walking down about a mile, mile and a half down the river from uh, our dig house was a big boat, a big dahabea, um, moored up at the river at, at the riverfront there. And so I walk down by myself, and I'm going through all these shrines, and uh, I notice there's one spot. Uh, this is about as paranormal as it gets. <laughs> uh, one spot, I walked into a shrine, and I started talking. I was doing some filming, and. Uh, my camera died. Then my other camera died. And I said, I just had full batteries on this. And uh, which is, which seemed like very paranormal TV show. So begrudging like fuck. And I got to walk all the way back to the boat and get my batteries. And I went to take out the batteries and they were fully charged again. So uh, there are things there. And, and there was one day when we were sitting on the, uh, on the boat and there was a story of one of the Egyptian workers for the archaeological site. They were all working, and there were guys on the boat, and he comes running out of the rocky hillside on the west bank, screaming. He saw a djinn in the hillside and was scared to death and ran onto the boat and down into the hold where they slept at night. 
And one by one, all the Egyptian workers over the next five minutes all come filing out and they come. They all get on the boat, they go down in the hold, and they smoke shisha all night long. <laughs> they would not go on shore until the next morning again. And so there was all of that was there. That stuff was there. And, uh, yeah, and you know it's bad when the locals are are freaking out about it because yeah. I mean they're around it all the time. But I hundred percent believe in in lower vibrational entities and other things outside the fabric yes. of reality. And I and I feel that a lot of these places, the reason that they're built there is because the veil is thinner in these areas. And that's yes. I feel that that has to do as well with a lot of these civilizations that just get up and go. The Mayans and all the you know Mohenjo Daro. Mm-hmm. You have different areas around the world where people just up and disappear. And I think it has to do something with the vibrational frequencies and the veil. You know, sometimes you just trip yes. over, uh, you know, some woo woo cord and, and there you are in, through there a wormhole and, or having visions, yeah. how you Boom. said, you know, it's, it's just like that. Exactly. That's really amazing, Scotty. And any closing thoughts as we bring this to an end, uh, did you? I want to share with the listeners that you do. You have been to Egypt and you have been and seen all these places. Yeah. So you're not just some, you know, keyboard archaeologist that's just sitting right, around right. at home, <laughs> you know, reading stories on online and all this shit. Right, uh, right. Although any... a good writer can put himself there, yeah. uh, some of the best science fiction writers I know have never traveled interstellarly, but uh, <laughs> you know, but they can write about it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I was just I was just talking to John today, John Ward, my my friend who wrote this book with me, my uh, British archaeologist friend. We were just talking about this very thing today. We hadn't talked for a couple of months and and just recounting some of this stuff and stuff we'd seen and been through. So so uh, any closing thoughts I would have is something I've said for a long time is don't let anybody tell you what you should believe go out there and figure it out um even the apostle paul if i can hail to new testament christianity and i have reason to believe the apostle paul hijacked christianity um i don't think his writings were invalid but i think he's presenting pauline christianity um he was a herodian and uh, as opposed to Peter, who was a Jewish Christian, as opposed to in, in so on. But uh, uh, Paul had said, work out your own salvation with fear and respect. Uh, meaning, work it out. Figure out what you believe. Know what you believe. But he was a firm preacher of the gospel. So he said, you've got to work these things out. You've got to find out how they work for you. You've got to work it out for yourself. Your own religion. Your own practice. So... In a sense, I'm kind of there. Um, God forbid that I'm wrong about everything I think. But like Feynman said, I don't want to come to the end of my life and realize everything that I believed was the wrong thing. Um, so to doubt for me is is a key a, a keystone to existence. I doubt and it makes me question. And when I question, I look for answers. Um, so... That's really where I am on a lot of this stuff. There's so much. I, I, I'll tell you what uh, there is. Uh, I know we're closing here, but this is that thing that Michael S. I. Heiser said, and I put this up on my social media yesterday. And uh, he said, so 
Uh, how, do all, how does all of this relate to today? He's referring to something he was talking about. He says, it doesn't relate at all if you don't believe in an unseen reality. If you do, it puts an Old Testament context to what we think of as spiritual warfare, one that goes far beyond mere demons. Demons are lightweight in comparison, mere irritants. The gods are something altogether different. And he uses a small g there for gods. He says, we can presume no authority to confront them, unlike demons. They are celestial ones, against whom even angels dare not blaspheme. They will only be dealt with by God and equal spiritual powers God tasks with doing so. Mm. And then he talks about, we're mere agents on the earth. He's speaking to Christians. Our task is to spread the gospel, he said, which is the thing that those beings fear the most. Spreading the gospel isn't an intellectual exercise. It's not a debate to win. People without Christ are under dominion, their minds darkened. The the war is spiritual in nature and so must be engaged in on that level. We're only agents. Opposition, failure, and success must be viewed in that light. Not intellect, not cleverness, not, God forbid, good marketing. You either believe you are part of something bigger than the reality you can discern or you don't. And that's kind of, I think, where I end up being, not on every point he's making there, but uh, I I look at that and I say, um, um, here, I lost my window, so I can't even see what I'm doing right now. <laughs> but uh, um, I find myself being in that position um, where I'm, I'm an agent of something. Um, I have to either accept that there's a greater reality than who I am and what I am, or that um, it's something completely different. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe we'll wake up one day. Yeah. Once we pass on, we'll wake up in some other body, some other light body, or something. Like, damn, we were all fucking wrong about this whole thing. <laughs> just That's it. go on and and and. I've had contact through psychics. No matter what you power you put in this, people who were very instrumental. My mentor when I was a young boy, uh, who led me into the faith that I believed somebody connected with him and they connected to him through things that they would never have known from my life. Uh, And you hear people say that all the time. This is literal. There were things that they brought up that he said, he's doing this. He's holding this object up idea to, to let you know that this is who you're actually talking to. So there's either some diabolical mimicry going on there, or this was the guy. Mm -hmm. And he said, one thing he wanted me to know, he said, he wants you to know he's proud of you and where you've gone and so on, but also that it's very different over here than we thought. Interesting. Meaning from that very Baptist fundamentalist point of view. Mm-hmm. And I've gotten that a couple of times from people where that message is given to me. So it's either, like I say, it's diabolical mimicry or it's there's something to that. It's different than what we thought it was going to be. He said. Absolutely. Scotty. I would love to have you back on again to talk some Anytime, reptilians brother. or Nephilim because we didn't even get yeah. to talk about that. Can you? Not much. Sorry. 
Hey, you're good. You're good. It was this was amazing. Can you plug your social media once more where people can find sure. your work so they can look you up and listen sure. to your show? You can go to my website, scottallenroberts.com, and Allen is A-L-A-N, so scottallenroberts.com. It's got links to all my social media over there. Um, you can see everything I've done. Uh, my, If I can just plug my most recent book, which isn't a book like the ones we've been talking about. This is it right here. It's called uh, The Sword and the Clay, and it's only that thick. It's only 8,000 words. And it's a book that's about uh, a story of uh, a true story of a uh, World War I soldier who found a Roman gladius, this kind of sword, in the clay after the bombing of Amiens in World War I. Oh. And, uh, and you I illustrated the whole thing, right? I, yeah, it's, I, I illustrated this as well. Well, there you can see just on the cover. That's some of my illustration work on the cover. But uh, um, I created a fictional character who's plausible, to give a backstory to the sword. And so it's all about oh, Will wow. Bird is the Canadian soldier, his paranormal experiences, his the ghost of his brother saving his life. He's rolling his memoirs uh, that he wrote after World War One, And uh, so I put it all into a cogent story and talked about this. So you might enjoy that. Awesome, Scotty. Uh, send me your, yeah, you already sent me your link. So if not, send me your links. Yes. I'll post them in the description. And I want to thank you again, Scotty, for coming on and taking time. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Juan. Thank you, Scotty. Well, that was it. I'll see you guys on the other side. Thank you so much.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 